welcome back to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho and Sam Collier. And today we are so lucky to be interviewing Tanuja Jagarnath, um, who is in Chicago. So she's an Indo-Caribbean playwright, dramaturg, and ceramic artist who believes in the necessity of creation during times of destruction. A former acupuncturist, Tanuja inspires to aspires to practice four specific frameworks for collective liberation and wellness through theater, self-community care, harm reduction, trauma-informed practice, and body positivity. Welcome, Tanuja. Thank you so much. I'm so geeked to be here. (laughs) Well, we are so glad to have you, and thank you. Um, You're one of the people we have met through doing this podcast, which is kind of an amazing thing to be able to say. So yeah, um, we really appreciate you being a listener and reaching out to us with your ideas and questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for being doing this. It's, it's a true service. I love it. Well, maybe we could start by just asking you how you discovered Beckett's babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have the fortune of being an associate artist with Cloudgate Theater. Um, and um, the artistic director of Cloudgate is Kristen E. Dajak. Um, I was dramaturging for Kristen's play, uh, Strange Heart Beating. And um, she mentioned that she had been on Beckett's Babies, this podcast. Um, so <laughs> yeah, she was one of our very first guests. So. Yeah. So I checked it out. Um, it was episode number four, listeners. And um, it's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my God, it's a, it's a podcast um, hosted by two people who are very different. I love that. Um, and then, you know, being completely keeping it real, I uh, didn't go to theater school. I don't have an MFA. I'm not going to go to get an MFA. So I was very drawn in by the fact that you both have an MFA from a very cool institution. I was like, ooh, I can learn a lot from them. And um, I just, every single episode, I learned something. So I, I appreciate that. Um, oh I'm one gosh, of these that's people. That's so nice. It's wonderful. And the fact that you do, um, offer playwriting exercises and um, have have different opinions about things. It's really beautiful. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Another question we like to ask on the show for all our writers <laughs> uh, is tell us your earliest memory. Um, what was your life like before theater? Yeah, immediately before theater, I was um, practicing acupuncture. Um, and that's probably a longer conversation. Um, but my earliest memory... I think about this memory actually every time I listen to the podcast because um, you ask other people and then I think about my own answer. Um, I'm in my uncle's living room. Um, my parents and I, we lived with him when I was three, uh, probably maybe for a year or something. And um, the the image that comes to mind is I'm in his living room and it's sunny and I'm by myself and um, I'm sitting on his beanbag that is right next to his bookcase. And he has, he had every single um, episode or not episode um, issue of Garfield. So (laughs) (laughs) I would sit in that beanbag and just read comics for hours. Um, And that's um, so cool. Yeah. That's like my earliest memory, but also probably one of my top life memories. So did you like learn to read 
on Garfield. <laughs> that there's, I think you could, I think you, that's a good um, hypothesis. I, I really do. Cause yeah, around that time, my mom um, tells me that uh, I was like, I would, I would ask my parents like, okay, you have your desk, you have your desk. When am I going to get my desk to do my work? <laughs> and so they got me one of those um, magnetic, desks with the letters and chalk you know mm-hmm. you, uh, and I would just go to town on that yeah it's been a nerd party I think my whole life <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool do you have siblings I have one sibling um my brother Naresh and um he's a nerd uh in a completely different way he does uh IT and um lives in Arizona with his two kids and his wonderful wife um yeah he's the best Awesome. Is that where you're from? Arizona? I was raised in Arizona. Yeah. So I, um, I was born in British, formerly British Guyana in South America. Um, for people who don't know where Guyana is, it's, um, right above Brazil between Venezuela and Suriname. So that's where I was born. Um, I'm fourth generation Guyanese. Um, my family, my people are part of the indentured labor, uh, movement of people from India to create British Guyana. Um, I was born there, uh, when I was one, my family and I, we were sponsored by my uncles, um, to come to the U S and, um, they left and moved on eventually, but, uh, my family and I, we stayed. So I was raised in Arizona. Mm Um, Arizona, as you can guess, it's not a haven of Indo-Caribbean community and culture. (laughs) So um, uh, actually, yeah, just keeping it completely real. In my 40s, I just turned 40. um, I'm I'm really unpacking um, that diasporic identity Mm. um, and just really, I guess you could say, leaning into diasporic identity as I write plays about the diaspora. Cool. That sounds like really exciting work. So, and did you, how did you end up in Chicago? And is that at all connected to how you got into theater? Oh yeah. It's not at all connected to how I got into theater. Um, uh, the short story of how I came to Chicago. So I was an English major at Arizona State University, and um, I did a minor in microbiology because at that time, I thought that um, right after college, I would do a, a one year of service with the Volunteers in Service to America program through AmeriCorps in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I thought I would... Um, you know, do that one year at the Department of Public Health and then move on to Atlanta, where mm-hmm. I would study uh, public health and epidemiology at Emory. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, <laughs> after getting a, a medical degree and stuff, um, I would work for the CDC and travel all over the world um, treating and preventing infectious diseases like Ebola and Marburg virus. I was like, I was obsessed with infectious disease. Um, what a cool plan. <laughs> and, and here you are. 
here I am. And and the plan got completely subverted by uh, two, two, three major things, I would say. One, um, I met a guy <laughs> in Chicago <laughs> um, who's my partner. We've been together since 2001. Um, we met through doing um, direct action work against the war um, after September 11th. So September 11th, I think, was the second thing that definitely derailed my plan um, for the better because after that I got involved with um, different community organizations but that's where I started getting involved with activism and organizing and um, I became a volunteer for the Chicago Rape Crisis Hotline um, and through the hotline volunteer work I met um, queer, black, and brown activists and organizers who first introduced me to, um, I think, theories of real liberation. And um, uh, they schooled me. They schooled me in um, everything I really needed to know, uh, prison abolition, um, harm reduction, um, what trauma looks like on the ground, um, and how people are surviving trauma without a lot of resources, um, things like that. So yeah, um, um, I'm grateful for that. Um, and yet, right. What a tragedy that so many of us remember in different ways, you know, September 11th. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, I was only supposed to be in Chicago for a year, obviously (laughs) here I am, um, um, 18 years later. During that time of doing activism and organizing, I took a street medic training um, because I was like, you know, I still want to do healthcare in some form. And at the street medic training, I met um, the second acupuncturist in my entire life. And this guy, um, Doc Rosen, um, who has since passed away, but um, he was a street medic and he would do street medicine in the U.S., but also in Guatemala. And um, if you're not familiar with street medicine, it's basically, uh, it's, it's you know, kind of self-explanatory, but specifically um, at protests or events where, um, say, if the police bust out rubber bullets and tear gas and things like that, the street medics are there to um, help treat people, pass out first aid supplies, um, hold down the first aid tent, um, do the um, collective community care. Uh, If and when there is um, interpersonal violence, street medics are often charged with um, helping to mediate the violence um, or bring in resources. and then in the times between protests, the street medics, um, uh, like one of my favorite people um, who used to live in Pittsburgh, Grace, um, they would they would practice street medicine for people who did not have access to um, healthcare services. Um, so I, I took that street medic training thinking like, okay, um, yeah, we're going to be protesting and I want to be able to offer something. And I met Doc Rosen and he was an acupuncturist. And I was like, wow, Doc, I want to do what you do. I want to be a a street medicine practitioner and a grassroots healer and whatever. And he was like, well, hello, there are two schools of acupuncture in Chicago. You should just go to one. (laughs) Wow. 
And so I did the research and found the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to go to this private graduate program. And then, you know, in four years, I'll be able to be a, a grassroots healer. Awesome. Um, and that plan got derailed. <laughs> um, I will say by capitalism. So um, the difference between acupuncture and most medical programs is that um, when you graduate with an acupuncture degree, there isn't a robust infrastructure right now that you can pop into um, to do a residency and you, you don't mm -hmm. just automatically have a, you know, 70,000 K job right off the bat. You've got to become your, an entrepreneur. You've got to become a business owner um, in most cases. Um, and they just, they just don't advertise that when you sign up. Um, so, um, uh, that's my story. So I did the four-year program. Um, I incurred a bunch of debt, um, that I still have, and I'm still trying to pay off. Wow. And yeah. then you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> yeah. So what I did, you know, I started a private practice. I did that for, um, a few years and then, um, I started a collective practice called Sage Community cool. Health Collective. Yeah, we did that for just under five years, but the kind of work where, yeah, we were working, we were working our butts off. And this is where I think um, there's so much uh, parallel between acupuncture practices and theater practices um, in terms of um, and this is what I understand from the people that I know who um, have been to to theater programs and stuff like it's a private usually a private education you come out with a lot of debt and then um there aren't enough jobs for everyone to have a sustainable life so you end up becoming like um, a freelancer and that's what most acupuncturists do so mm -hmm. um anywho uh after under yeah just under five years i closed the practice because um i this was in 2016, I realized, you know, I have always been a writer. I've always wanted to do theater. Life is short. Um, and I'm not doing the creative work that I've always wanted to do. Um, I had had an opportunity to go to the Voices of Our Nation's Arts uh, writing workshop, um, it's a multi genre workshop for writers of color. Um, and I had the opportunity to do that in 2015 uh, and study a week of playwriting with Kim Ewell and um, a handful of beautiful playwrights who all were like, you don't have to have a theater degree to do to do playwriting. Um, mm -hmm. So get on it. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> you know, get on. So that that definitely pushed me toward um, um, you know making that career shift. Um, and, you know, the thing also that helped me realize that life is really short is as an acupuncturist, you know, I was seeing patients um, who had cancer. Um, one of them passed away. And then my best, dearest, oldest Chicago friend passed away from cancer. Um, oh. And that just like devastated me. So I was just like, yeah. okay, you know, when it comes to things like cancer, one, um, uh, acupuncture is not going to cure it. And 
it's not in my hands to to end this thing. And two, I may not be all that special when it comes to um, the potentiality of mortality sooner than I would have thought, right? Um, Mm Because both of these people, they died um, under the age of 40. Wow. Yeah. I'm so sorry. That's awful. Thank you. Um, It is awful. Fuck cancer. Um, And um, Mm -hmm. um, I'm grateful for theater because so I... Uh, what did I do? Okay, 2016, closed the collective. And immediately I was like, what am I going to do? I went to Chicago Dramatists and asked if they ha- they're they a playwright, um, playwriting center, um, new work development center, I should say. Um, I went there. I had taken a class there. I asked them if they have any internships. And they're like, oh, yeah, send us your resume and cover letter. And in the summer of 2016, I got an internship. Um because I was like, I'm not going to go back to grad school. For, I, I cannot take on any more <laughs> yeah. student loans. Um, there's got to be a way to learn how to do this. Um, and ha- there's got to be a way to learn the, the, the industry and the field without going to school. So um, sure enough, um, a three-month internship at Chicago Dramatist turned into a part-time job um, because of, you know, administrative arts turnover. Um, that part-time job turned into a full-time job, but the perk that I will always be so grateful for um, with Chicago Dramatist was I was able to take classes for free. Um, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So I studied with Dana Lynn Formby primarily. Um, she's a wonderful playwright and dramaturg uh, currently living in Colorado. Um, I got to study with um, a number of people. I got to meet folks in a writer group, and that just um, sold me. Like, uh, mm-hmm. And it was such a great engine and motivator and container for getting work done. Um, through that, I got my first dramaturgy gig. And um, since then, I've just been, you know, popping in where people invite me to do do stuff. So that's my short story. Um, that's incredible. Like I just hearing you to, uh, to share your life, the journey. I mean, it's so crazy how we all we're all coming from so many different places of interest or like a career paths where it takes us. And so I'm just so curious to know too, like from uh, what you study, where you're coming from, how does it inform your writing as a playwright? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, um, back in 2009, um, I started studying with, uh, just privately with a coach, um, Minal Hadratwala, um, who's a poet and a playwright and an essayist and um, creative writer, and she's brilliant. Um, she, I think, really, really rooted me in character work. Um, she did a course called uh, Writing from the Chakras, and um if you're not familiar with the chakra system, it's it comes from, um, let's call it like Indian philosophy and Indian spiritual tradition, and it's rooted in this idea of you know our bodies have this physical and emotional and mental aspect 
they also have an energetic aspect and our energy or, or prana or chi moves through um, vessels and vortices. And we have seven major energy centers in the body that start at the base of the spine and go all the way to the top of the head. Um, so anyway, uh, Minal did this brilliant class um, called Writing from the Chakras. And she taught us uh, one, get embodied before you even begin writing. Um, so uh, do some practice that gets you your heart moving, your blood moving, uh, whether it's yoga, stretching, take a walk, do jumping mm. jacks, have a dance party, whatever. Um, and then um, the prompts that she gave us to explore character were all informed by the attributes that commonly go with each chakra. So um, it was a really nice container. Cool. Yeah. Um, and so as an acupuncturist, I was like, oh, yeah, I think about this stuff all the time. And um, so what it means for me in my writing with my characters, I think about what's going on in their body. I think about um, where they have blockages. Um, I think about like what would be their traditional East Asian medicine diagnosis. Um, I think about um, you know, like if I were to sit down with them and do a consultation in the treatment room, you know, I would ask them the same questions I ask any patient, um, um, except, uh, <laughs> the difference is with a character, right? I get to make up their backstory. Um, I get to, uh, I get to give them hardships. I get to insert and impose upon them obstacles. Um, whereas when you're an acupuncturist, ideally, you're not imposing anything. You're really, <laughs> <laughs> you're listening, right? Mm. Um, so anyway, but I do, I do believe that, yeah, 10 years of acupuncture practice has definitely given me a good amount of um, potential material to uh, potentially give to a character. Um it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because I just read your play, How to Pick a Lock, which is amazing. And um, I was really struck by the, the stage directions about body language. So, for example, you'll have a character, you know, respond to something that somebody else says by crossing her arms over her chest or leaning forward, or, you know. And, and I was struck by that because I don't see it very often in plays. and. Um, it told me a lot about what was going on with the characters when they weren't speaking. Mm. So that's cool that that's that you're bringing that knowledge from working with with bodies, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and just Go to ahead. add to that, I got a chance to read your other play, Skin. Uh, listeners, all her plays are new play exchange. Really check it out. Um, read them. You should read Skin, them. The the play, <laughs> they're. Um, where uh, I felt like this visceral react, had this visceral reaction where uh, the mother daughter, uh, the knives are being thrown. I, 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 I like I felt the knife. Like I felt the the scratch on the knife of the face. You know, like I felt it all, and I was like, oh, like like I was like on the edge of my seat and kind of like oh, anticipating these knife throws. Like <laughs> it was like. I don't know. So like, yeah, it's just so interesting. Um, your writing is just, is it takes, it just takes me on a whole new level. Wow. 
Thank you so much. Um, yeah, the body, it's a text. And when mm-hmm. you're sitting with anyone, even a friend, uh, you know, they're, and they're, you're just having a conversation, the body is communicating constantly. Um, and so it's, uh, I taught a course in communication, right? And like, one of the things that we talked about was, was body language, like 60 plus percent of communication is nonverbal. Um, and so like for folks who walk away from a conversation feeling kind of weird, even though nothing quote unquote happened that was wrong or, um, no major fight actually happened, but you feel weird. Like, you know, I, would recommend like think through what you saw, think through like where you saw their eyes moving, um, what they did with their hands, um, what they were doing with their posture, all these things. Um, mm-hmm. Cause yeah, I, I, and maybe it's a little impositional uh, as a writer to put that kind of stuff in stage directions. Right. Cause like oh, the director and the- I don't think so at all. Okay. I, mean, yeah. I think you leave, you leave a lot of room for the yeah. creative team mm-hmm. to interpret it. Okay, cool. cool but cool. um but it, it tells us so much about, especially when you have five characters on stage and, you know, you can't have everybody say a line every time they feel something. <laughs> it's like an easy way for you to be tracking all those characters mm. Okay. Um, yeah. in response to what is being it's, said. Yeah. So I yeah, thought it was really cool. I don't know. I think there's something a lot being said when the character their physicality or something, what's not being said, but we're like seeing it. And I think I'm sure for an actor perform, there's a lot that they could grasp and use to interpret and take it all in internally to help with their performance. Like, I don't know. There was just like a lot of there that I was taking internally that I was like, Oh, there's a lot here to explore through that. That could change my, you know, external actions when I'm on stage, you know, there's just, there's just a lot there that Mm -hmm. could unpack. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Bodies. We've got got them. (laughs) (laughs) And we put them on stage to do stuff. Yeah, totally. And Mm -hmm. to have a playwright that knows the body so well and to write in that it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, Which kind of, I guess we should, which kind of brings us to um, like why we wanted to have you on the show because uh, you emailed us and asking us questions um, about anti-fascist plays. <laughs> uh, uh, great transition. Uh, we're talking about <laughs> bodies and anti-fascist. It kind of goes hand in hand. Um, no, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're current. It sounds to me that you're currently in process of something. Uh of your work and love to hear what, what are you working on right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I, like, I want to trust that any theater that anyone does contributes to this thing of fighting fascism, right. Or fighting systemic oppression or fighting the, the perpetuance or perpetuation of a, a culture that, can breed fascism, right? Like, um, I never want to, you know, be the kind of writer or a person that is so prescriptive to say, like, your joyful piece about puppies isn't enough to fight fascism, <laughs> right? Like, 
<laughs> like, I actually think, yes, no, there's an absolute role for your joyful piece about puppies, right? So, like, um, I want to put that out there first. Um, um, the thing I'm working on is, um, like, not directly connected to fascism, but it is. Um, it's connected to the roots and the culture and the histories that I'm connected to that, that, that I think make Indo-Caribbeans um, potential tools for perpetuating fascism. So um, like I was saying about uh, where I was born, I was born in Guyana. And right now what I'm researching is just the history of Indo-Caribbean everything. Um, so from the time that the ships first left India to go to South America um, to present day and into the future. And um, basically my hope and my goal um, is to write a seven series, uh, seven, what am I trying to say? A series of seven plays um, that use that framework of the chakras, right? That go from mm. the root Cool. Of the spine all the way to the top of the head and um you know each chakra has a theme so like first chakra is about survival um and tribe second chakra is about reproduction and um creativity think about like your reproductive organs um third chakra is about like power and self-esteem and individual power <clears throat> fourth is usually your heart center um love and stuff. Um, fifth is communication and the, the throat area. Um, sixth is like intuition and clairvoyance and sight, like inner sight, intuition. And then the seventh is supposed to be like, um, your connection to the greater. Um, I identify as an atheist, but some people would say that it's your connection to spirit and ancestry. Um, and maybe I should identify as an agnostic because I, I just don't think I should ever say I, don't, I know anything about anything. Um, but um, <laughs> I have well, – anyways, yeah. Um, um, but anyway, so yeah, using the seven chakras as a framework, I'd like to write a play about um, some aspect of Indo-Caribbean history, um, really asking the question of like we have – history that we share in this severed root system, right? Our roots were cut. Um, our roots in India were severed uh, when indentured labor began. And yeah, if you go to Queens and, you know, you go to Liberty Avenue and you um, meet the people there, like um, I have aunties and uncles and cousins who live in um Queens, New York. And, um, I have folks who live in Toronto. I have folks who live in Florida. Like those are the centers of Indo-Caribbean culture. Um, uh, so for me as a person who grew up in Arizona, quite cut off from that, um, I'm, I'm in this awkward position of like learning about myself and learning about my people through, through books currently, um, which is just dorky and, but it's where I'm at. <laughs> um, so I'm doing the research for that series of plays and hoping to track the history, but also the future. So like the question I'm asking is if we have this shared severance of roots um, and we have this very divergent way of like 
understanding our place in the world, um, how do we collectively vision a future? Um, do we even need to, right? Does it even matter? Like, um, I really think about a lot. Like, since I was a kid, I've always thought about like, who are my people? And more and more, I think about just my people tend to be people with whom I share a value or a practice. Um, it may not be a someone who I share my ethnicity or race. Um, so anyway, I just have all these questions. So um, I'm reading a lot. I'm reading um, this wonderful uh, anthology called Indo-Caribbean Feminist Thought. Um, I just finished a brilliant book by um, uh, Gayutra Bahadur called Kuli Woman. I've been trying to read this book since 2014, and I just finished it. Um, <laughs> it's one of those ones that, like, you know, you read it and you start feeling mm -hmm. rage or feeling um, grief. And so I'd have to put it away. Uh, but I finally mm -hmm. finished it. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's what I'm working on. I'm researching that. Um, but in the research for that, um, I'm bringing in, like, it's just making me ask other questions, right? So um, what I see is you know, the history of, of colonization and colonialism that I come from, uh, that the dynamics never went away. Um, and so when I look at the news or look at what's going on in the U.S. today, um, it really, it hurts. Um, and um, so when I, you know, hear about, uh, you know, our current occupant of the White House, um <laughs> pulling things like that sharpie stunt <laughs> oh right <God>. it's like <laughs> it's ridiculous and it's 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 absolutely absurd and it's 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 incredibly painful because it's like wow okay he is a product i believe of centuries of white supremacy and imperialism and capitalism and patriarchy and heteropatriarchy like creating the conditions specifically for him to be. Um, so yeah, I do ask like, how can theater, how can this thing that I've decided to commit uh, the rest of my days to, how can that thing that has so much potential um, put a stop to um, like the far right, but also fascism and, um, when I say fascism, like, I don't just mean like bad behavior or um, systemic oppression. I mean, um, fascism as Toni Morrison talks about it. And Sarah, you had read that essay by Toni yeah, Morrison messaged, too. I messaged you. I was like, hey. There's a oh, yeah. But we should, we should read the yeah. whole thing if we have time. Like, she breaks it down. And um, like, every single thing that Toni Morrison talks about in this essay um, – racism and fascism it's part of her current her latest collection of essays and speeches called the source of self-regard and i do recommend it for every single writer out there um um but yeah i think she breaks it down so perfectly um so i really ask like how can theater address any of these um ways in which 
racism and fascism are uh, operating in the U.S., um, but also, geez, in the theater industry. Um, I surely do not have answers, um, but Mm -hmm. I'm happy to share what I have collected so far. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Because I'm I'm sure there are a lot of other writers out there who are grappling with these same questions. So yeah, for sure. And you know, they pro- they probably want to know what you <laughs> what you've learned. Um, yeah, I can share what I've what I what has been helpful, and um, what I think is useful to put more attention into, right? So um, my initial question, like, how can theater fight fascism? I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I'm a dramaturg. I have to read every single play that against fascism that was ever written from <laughs> the beginning <laughs> of theater to present day. And did I have time to do that? No. no. Um, <laughs> it's like I started reading um, <laughs> Fear and Loathing or whatever in the Third Reich by Brecht um, mm. and so on and so forth. And to be honest with you, like it wasn't sparking inspiration (laughs) it was but what I did notice right was that in that play in particular right you get a sense of the current conditions um so then I was like okay moving on um I read Christiana Ray Colon's play Florissant and Canfield um which is set in Ferguson right after uh Mike Brown was murdered um by the police and um again in that play, um, and I do recommend that you read it, it is on National or New Play Exchange. Um, and if you don't know Christiana Ray Colon, I do recommend that you find her work, study her work, her whole canon. She is building uh, what she calls an abolitionist canon. So um, abolitionist meaning like um, work that seeks to end prisons, but also policing. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. I I definitely would recommend like really studying her work, not only in theater, but um, in poetry and performance in activism in community building. Um, uh, Christiana is co-founder of the let us breathe collective. And um, I can say from personal experience brings a level of intentionality and accountability that I really respect. Um, Especially because, you know, uh, since I have come to theater, you know, these past few years, I have seen just truly atrocious behavior inside of institutions, um, large, small, in between. Um, and I, meaning theater. Yeah. uh Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that because I think maybe this is another conversation, but your, but how to pick a lock definitely points to some of those, <laughs> some of those um, practices that might be more harmful than for beneficial. sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, and I, 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 you know, I'm definitely not the only one grappling with all this stuff. I, I feel very lucky to work with a few people who I think are actively trying to um, do things differently. So um, like Tara Branham, who was the director of How to Pick a Lock when it was up at RhinoFest, I would say is somebody who's absolutely grappling with how to bring harm reduction practices into rehearsal rooms. Um, um, 
I see prop theater more and more trying to bring um, equitable equitable practices to everything they do. Um, Cloudgate Theater um, with Kristen Dajak and Shane Kelly, right? I definitely respect like their efforts to also do theater in a way that is human centered and um, uh, honors harm reduction and like honors every single human being in the room. I feel very lucky to be connected to people who are making um, concerted, consistent efforts to doing that. Um, At the same time, like, I do still want to ask that question of like, um, how can this, how can this industry, you know, we are armed with a wonderful, powerful tool. Theater is potentially life-shifting. I can think of plays that I've seen that absolutely shifted the course of my trajectory um, for the better. Can you name Uh, any? Yeah, for sure. Um, Jarred um, by, that was a devised piece um, by Teatro Luna. And I'm, I'm, not kidding you. I went and I saw that play maybe five times. Um, wow. Yeah. And each play, each time I took more people to come see it. Like um, one, I'm that kind of geek. And two, like <laughs> it was healing. It, it, it spoke to the moment that I was in um, so perfectly. Um, and I found that catharsis and like um, the thing about theater that I think is so powerful um, and it gives you this chance to prefigure the world you want to live in, right? Um, you have the potential to build the world you want to see on stage. Um, and then if you're really lucky, you can build that world through your her- rehearsal process. Um, you can build mm-hmm. that world even in your writing process, right? Um, like what would it take to do that? Um, and I feel like that's all I've got, right? Like Brecht had nothing to give me in terms of like, what do I do right now? Um, I'm sorry to say, like, uh, if, and when I feel like adapting something, um, you know, Mm -hmm. absolutely. I'm going to go back to our homie, but, um, (laughs) like, I really feel (laughs) what's up. Uh, you know, I'll definitely like pop back in and be like, yeah. And, you know, Eugene, Ionesco, like Rhinoceros, right? That also, that play sticks out in my mind um, so clearly. Um, um, shedding light on the necessity to break free from the crowd and not just follow along, right? Um, uh, those are people I will absolutely reference. Um, um, but I currently am feeling like um, for theater to fight fascism, I think we our theater practice has to shift and um, uh, somehow find a way to break the isolation that uh, I have a sense a lot of people are operating in. Um, I would love to see more opportunities, which is why I really love your podcast. Like I'd love to see more opportunities for folks to talk to and be in community with one another. Um, I love to see theater practice create alternatives. And, you know, I do have to ask like with, um, 
you know, like every actor that I know, every playwright that I know, um, every designer that I know, every director, they're working on multiple shows at a time, um, uh, barely paying their bills, right? Some folks are very fortunate and they teach at a bigger institution. Um, some folks are very fortunate and they work for a theater company. Some folks are very fortunate and they have a partner who can support them. That's not everybody's reality. Um, the saddest thing that I've seen lately is, you know, uh, folks who are like, I can't do theater right now. I've got to um, uh, work on my finances in this completely other realm. Um, and when I'm able, I'll come back again to theater. You know what I'm saying? Um, and right. uh, sure, I'm like, you yeah. have to honor your reality. You have to honor where you're at. And um, I do... We need those people. Yeah, we need your vision, we need your work. And I'm just like, but I cannot blame them at all because um, am I going to pay their bills? Am I going to, you know, we we have such an individualistic kind of Mm -hmm. situation here. So I really like, um, that's why I just don't have answers. yeah, it is. I mean, I, I think about this all the time because for an art form that emphasizes community and, you know, working as a team, <laughs> we are all, we've all kind of um, ended up in this model that that makes us all individual freelancers and mm-hmm. it's not sustainable. One thing I will say, so right, like, you know, I think as people are building opportunities to collectivize and communicate and um, have community. Um, So let's say, you know, we're still building that, but say you're an individual playwright and you're like, well, how can I write a play that um, could push back against um, some of these destructive forces? Like the resource that I really recommend is from Aurora Levins Morales, um, her book, Medicine Stories, and um, specifically the essay historian as Curandera. Um, And I want to say I was turned on to this book by um, Shira Hassan at the Young Women's Empowerment Project. So this has like Shira's practice (laughs) at YWEP was not theater based, but um, I just think it's this book, Medicine Stories, is is absolutely potentially central to um, my practice as a writer. Um, and I want to can I can I read like her ten because yeah, I do think oh, yeah. it's a wonderful guide mm-hmm. um, for folks who are like asking this question of like you know yeah I uh, I have limited time I just want to write plays um, or. I don't know where to start in my practice or ec- exploration. So um, I'll read you Aurora Levins Morales's guidelines um, for writing medicinal stories. Um, and so one, um, tell, tell untold or undertold histories. Um, two, center women um, that will change the landscape. And I'll say women, femmes, and gender nonconforming people, right? Three, identify strategic pieces of misinformation and contradict them. So, yeah, if there's, um, you know, <laughs> um, mm. everything from Trump's Sharpie moment to, um, you know, history that is 
poorly told or told only from a certain angle? How can you expand that? Um, make absences visible, right? And mm-hmm. I do feel like um, books like Coley Woman do that very, very well um, because, you know, she brings in um, the presence of femme laborers. She brings in um, uh, the home into um, the history of Indo-Caribbean people. And like it, any kind of history you can read, it's not going to talk about the home life. It's not going to talk about domestic violence. Um, five, ask question, asking questions can be as good as answering them, which I'm grateful for that. Um, six, um, challenge what constitutes evidence. Um, um, this idea of evidence being like um, the written record is not the only record to draw upon, right? What about oral history? Um, so on and so forth. What about a photo, right? Can a photo album be be evidence? Um, if in, if so, how? Let's see, seven. Show agency. Ah, yeah, right. So like um, centering the um, agency and uh, power of the subjects you're involving. Um, show complexity and embrace ambiguity and contradiction. Once again, like, and, you know, you all know in theater, like, most awful thing to see is like representation of a person of color or a queer person on stage. But hello, they're two dimensional, flat, uh, have <laughs> um, right. nine, reveal hidden power relationships, yeah. um, which to me, I would, I would absolutely love to see more theater practitioners talk about power, um, individual power, group power, systemic power, and just be experts in power. Um, yeah, that, that makes me think of Naomi Wallace's work because I, she strikes me as a playwright who's like obsessed with power dynamics on stage. Oh, cool. That's awesome. I will check out Naomi Wallace for sure. Um, and number 10, personalize. Um make people human, right? Mm-hmm. Build a human, build humanity. Um, Toni Morrison talks about that in her essay, Racism and Fascism. Um, the forces of fascism and how they turn citizens into consumers, turn neighbors into consumers. Um, our humanity gets flattened out. Um and we end up living in a culture where uh, we don't see humans, we see criminals. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think our current administration is absolutely feeding that sort of dynamic. What a great list. Yeah. yeah. Aurora Levins Morales, um, the historian Escurandera. And um, there is a new edition of this book that I do recommend reading. Um, um Aurora Levins Morales also has an essay in this same book, Medicine Stories, um, about living a sustainable activist life, which, you know, I think it's a really beautiful essay, too. Yeah. So anyways. Cool. You know, this, so this kind of reminded me of something uh, that I want to say. I think it's so easy when we hear the word fascism. It's so easy, easy for our mind to go to the place of like, oh, yeah, it's like Hitler thing. Or, oh, yeah, it's like mm-hmm. uh, what happened recently in that South state or whatever. You know, it's it's <laughs> go there. But, you know, like this past week or two weeks, I was reading and learning about public transportation, mm-hmm. how 
uh, I think it's in Arizona or anyways, how this city uh, is fighting to have transportation because uh, just a few selected, very powerful people who own um, car parts and, you know, they don't want to they don't want public transportation to win in this town because that would mean more people would be taking the bus and not driving cars. Mm -hmm. And so like, and so there's this lobbyists that are just, or or whole program design to put commercials and ads on TV to say, Hey, uh, don't vote for this public transportation. It's bad. That means you won't, you know, it's bad for the city. There was more of this, more of that you know, vote no and drive your cars, you know? Oh my gosh. And it's wow. so, I mean, that's just another thing about that. Fascism is not just this like a Hitler thing. There's just yeah. one dude, does it, but it's also this very <laughs> like micro in your local area thing that's happening. Um, yeah. That's just like something I was thinking about how our idea of fascism is is a lot personal than we think it's like happening in your own neighborhood mm-hmm. and not knowing yeah yeah that's so brilliant and like you know because it, it speaks to messaging and this idea um of um how local and specific in every single day we are interacting with fascist behavior. And um, can I read a a bit from Tony's essay? Excuse me, Tony Morrison's essay. (laughs) We're not on like first name basis. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, The forces interested in fascist solutions to national problems are not to be found in one political party or another, or in one or another wing of any single political party. Democrats have no unsullied history of egalitarianism, nor are liberals free of domination agendas. Republicans have housed abolitionists and white supremacists, conservative, moderate, liberal, right, left, hard left, far right, religious, secular, socialist. We must not be blindsided by these Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola labels because the genius of fascism is that any political structure can host the virus and virtually any developed country can become a suitable home. Fascism talks ideology, but it it is really just marketing, marketing for power. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, Sarah, your example is so perfect because those advertisements, right, like marketing for power, um, mm-hmm. taking away this division but in this separation between like our laws, right? And, and the there mar- are so many examples that happen at the local level while we're all distracted by what's happening at the national level. Yeah. For so. sure. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So, yeah, as like practice theater practitioners. Um, I do feel like every single time we get together in a room for rehearsal, right, a lot of us, more and more, I think, if we're doing it right, quote, ah, knock on wood, um, we're working with people we maybe haven't worked with before. And we're working with people who um, maybe we wouldn't normally interface with just, you know, um, in our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And so there's a beautiful opportunity to explore ideas and have powerful dialogue and um, do this thing 
where there's mutual transformation. Um, you know, and if we're lucky, our director, if we're lucky, the dramaturg in the room, if we're lucky, you know, even the stage manager, like, is interested in holding a space that can be liberatory and human-centered and, you know, hopefully push back against um, these kind of, like, automatic ways of thinking that we, like, inherit from one another, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I love this idea of like, how can that translate into the production? How can that translate into the script? Um, how can the conversations you have in your rehearsal room that are liberatory, uh, translate into questions you're asking with your work through the narrative? So you don't have to get on stage and be like, fuck Trump, you know, but (laughs) (laughs) we're like smash the state, right? Like people have been doing things like slogan sloganizing or whatever for forever that didn't stop it um um anyways yeah yeah Yeah. that's great so we're curious to know what advice do you have for people who might be just starting out um as theater artists and um, maybe they're playwrights maybe they're not sure what or maybe they're like you know what's the term for people who do all of the above actors, playwrights, directors, but um, what, what would you tell them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I would ask so many questions, right? Like um, I think I would ask them, what was the last play that you saw and what about it made you want to get into this? Um, Mm -hmm. um, And I, I would ask, you know, um, do you want to be the person who um, designs that world? Do you want to be the person who puts that world on paper? Um, or do you just want to be in that room? Do you want, are you more like you should focus on being the best patron ever and become a subscriber to um, a mm. theater company, right? Like, cause there's so many ways to interface with theater that have nothing to do with writing or, um, directing, acting, et cetera. And I, I personally wish I had known that when I was in high school and just like, you know, I like want to be a part of that world, but there isn't an opening for me. Like, I think I would have become a stage manager um, back in the day if anybody had been like, oh yeah, you're a geek and you want to hang out, like, <laughs> get a Leatherman and get a, a mag light and like, mm-hmm you know, walk around with us and like do stuff, um, keep us organized anyways. But like, yeah, I I would, I would ask questions for sure. Um, I would not say go start a theater program at a private institution. (laughs) Tell me why. Um, I would guard against just jumping in like that because Mm -hmm. at the private institution, you will acquire a lot of debt. Um, And I just feel like sometimes private institutions, they have a voice, they have a formula, they have a structure, they have institutional loyalties, they have internal politics. Um, And like, if you're completely new to theater and you just love theater, you are very malleable. And I would Mm -hmm. never want someone, I would never want someone's love and joy of theater to be um, squashed by 
some of the more like political, personal, ego-driven factors that have nothing to do with the love of theater, right? So- right. Or even the forces of, I mean, I, I think one of the most dangerous forces for someone who's just starting writing is this idea of what is marketable. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and so yeah, I I agree. When you're when you're malleable like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to be protective of yourself. Because mm-hmm. I would say also like yeah, where do you love to go see plays? And maybe like um, see if you could sit down with somebody who worked on the production, you know, the director maybe, or the playwright, or even the dramaturg, mm-hmm. or like the artistic director of the company. Are they cool? Um, do they listen to you? Are they nice? just on a basic level are they not abusive right like Mm -hmm. these are basic things that we still have to watch out for um you know and like find a way in find a way in if it's something you want to do find a way in um if if there's so many gatekeepers fuck them keep keep trying to find a way in um Mm -hmm. um, I, i do believe like like i have been so fortunate um to have have been given this opportunity by so many people um, who are like, oh yeah, you want to do this? Come, come check this out. Come do this with us. Um, uh, Free Street Theater is a great example, right? So, um, I and I I should have listed them earlier. Like they are a wonderful company that has been doing theater in Chicago, free theater in Chicago for 50 years. They're celebrating. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of Free Street Theater, and like they open their arms to people who don't have formal theater training. Um, um, They take their theater practice out literally onto the street, um, into parks, Um, like find places like that that will embrace you um, and say, you have a place here. It doesn't matter what your credentials are or what have you, but you've got something to say, okay, come on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful for them and, and so many other places and people who are like, oh, yeah, you know, come this way. Tanuja, thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been amazing. So as you probably know, this part of the show, we do a thing called glistens. Yeah. <laughs> um, but before we get to that, like, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about you? Um, currently, I would say, um, look, I'm going to sound like a jerk, but like, um, I hate Facebook and um, I'm starting to dislike Instagram. Um, but those are the places that you could find me on the internet. <laughs> So um, my handle uh, for Instagram is at Tanuja, uh, T-A-N-U-J-A underscore D-E-V-I. And then um, Facebook, it's Tanuja Davy, uh, all spelled out, two different words. Um, and just to be like, yeah, just like if anybody wants to talk to me, I will talk to you. So like, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Sweet. What a kind offer. <laughs> listeners get in touch yeah let's move on to glistens yeah sam do you want to, or I should, oh am i going first i want to go first because i'm so excited oh. <laughs> I'm like, okay you go first okay so last night um i had a chance to see john maybe's play uh part of a light and dark places and 
got to meet him in person, which is so awesome. Like John, maybe was our- and he was our guest yeah. two episodes ago. two episodes ago, mm-hmm. and he was also uh, one of our first listeners. We got an email from, and uh, what a cool friendship that kind of built out of that. Just sort of this journey of over the months, we kind of exchanging emails, bringing him on the show, talking to him, and then meeting him in person, seeing his work on stage. Um, incredible evening of plays. Um, the the play was part of a this large organization called A Light in Dark Places. Um, it's a nonprofit organization that's all about um, suicide prevention and, and teaching about suicide and mental health. So uh, it was an incredible evening, right in the heart of Hollywood, <laughs> to be in that area, uh, and to see just community of people and artists bringing these plays to life um, with really hopeful messages, and it was great. I love it. That's so cool. Yeah, it was awesome. Let's glisten. Yes. Tanuja, how about you? What's your glisten? Um, my glisten is um, my hammock. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And like this, this week, um, I had a chance to like after work, go hang in a hammock. Um, and I have one and my partner has one and like, we live five minutes away from the lake. And so, um, if you go at the right time in Chicago to hang in a hammock by the lake, you can catch, um, the sunset and, um, we're facing east, the sun's setting in the west, but the light will filter through the leaves um, of the nearby trees, and it it casts this beautiful green, golden mm. glow. Um, mm-hmm. And there's nothing like it. So that yeah, that's my glisten right now. That sounds magical. oh, that's goals. I want a hammock so badly. They're not very expensive. You can get them. At Target, <laughs> no, I, live in, like, I live in apartments, so I can't. Uh-huh. And I don't have a yard or anything. I'm just stuck with people around me. Well, Sarah, don't get too jealous because Chicago only has like three more weeks till winter. So <laughs> true. I know we're we're trying to figure out how we can do hammocking during the winter. But um, look, I, we live in a studio. We have no yard, so we have to go to the park and stuff. So I, mm. I really, all you need to hammock two trees and a hammock. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, Sarah, you should get one. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's like another new business in LA is I could start renting out hammocks in the park. And like, hey, for $2. Yo. Yes. Like Heck Airbnb yeah. for hammocks. Yes. That's hilarious. Oh my God. Do it. I don't know. That sounds kind of fascist. I think it should be <laughs> it's capitalist, but it's not fascist. Yeah, good point. Good oh point. my gosh. All right. There's a way to there's a way to do social entrepreneurship. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, my lesson is um, I'm currently teaching at this environmental college right now, and we're reading the Odyssey in one of my classes, and um, I'm using the the new translation of the Odyssey by Emily Wilson, and it is brilliant. It's so good. I highly recommend it. She's the first woman ever to translate the Odyssey, and she set herself some pretty strict parameters. Um, it's really good. So, yeah, write that down. Highly recommend. That was our show. That's glistens. 
Thank you. Tanuja, it was so wonderful talking to you. Oh my gosh, so wonderful talking with you. Thanks for exploring this topic. It's big and it's, um, you know, unwieldy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so necessary. And um, I think it's on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I hope we can keep the conversation going. Um, And I know I'm going to keep on digging into it because it's, all around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Thanks. Um, all right, listeners, thanks so much for listening to the show. Please make sure to follow us at Beckett's Babies on the World Wide Web of social media. So tell your friends about us. We're out there on Insta, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. We're probably on it, except TikTok. We will never be on TikTok. <laughs> I don't like TikTok. We're too old for it. We're never going to be on it. But if you convince us, we may be. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening.